Thank you for listening, and welcome to the Titans of History series. Episode 31, The Third Coalition. Welcome back, everyone, and we are now about to embark on the great crusade that truly defines the lasting legend that will become Napoleon Bonaparte. Newly crowned as Emperor Napoleon I, we are about to begin a journey that will end with the magnum opus of his career at the legendary Battle of Austerlitz. Many of the figures and events that we'll be speaking about over the course of the next few episodes are so famous and so historically important that they really cease being history and enter into an almost mythical category all their own. And so, beginning today, we're going to try our best in telling their story, and hopefully we can all come out the other side with a better understanding, and perhaps appreciation, for what is about to become one of the most dominant military campaigns in the history of warfare. And so with that, let's begin. Now today, we're going to set the stage for the upcoming 1805 campaign season by talking about the background that led to the formation of the Third Coalition. Now we already know that war had resumed with Britain back in May of 1803, and a year later, William Pitt the Younger became Prime Minister of Great Britain for the second time. Now following the execution of the Duc d'Anjen, much of the rest of Europe was now on heightened alert, and they were beginning to sharpen their blades for retribution against Napoleon for what they had perceived as an entire threat against the established hierarchy. And indeed, Pitt spent the majority of 1804 and the beginning of 1805 scouring over the continent looking for allies to form a new coalition to defeat France, knowing that doing so alone would be costly in terms of both manpower and resources, and thus they needed willing partners to help aid in their campaign. Pitt used the Duke's execution as a rallying cry amongst the rest of the European nobility, declaring that it was but a precursor to a return to the bloodletting that had not been seen since the early years of the French Revolution. Now, one of the first countries to cut off diplomatic relations with France following the Duke d'Anjens' execution was also the first to make an alliance with Britain, and that was Sweden. In December of 1804, conveniently right after Napoleon had crowned himself emperor, Pitt signed an alliance with Sweden, which allowed the British to stage their troops in the protectorate of Swedish Pomerania in exchange for a substantial sum of cash. Now, this was critical because the protectorate was right next to the electorate of Hanover, now under French control, and that was the ancestral homeland to the British monarchy. And in fact, reigning King George III was the first monarch from the House of Hanover who spoke English as a first language instead of German, and so, recapturing Hanover was of great personal significance to the British war effort. In the following April, this is April of 1805, Pitt secured the greatest prize, which was Russia. A burgeoning enemy now turned ally, Russia's entry into the Third Coalition was of critical strategic importance to the British for two reasons. One, it helped to offset the monetary costs that it needed to pay off smaller allies, as Russia was also rich in resources, and then two, well, those very resources. You see, Russia had dominated the Baltic, and the area was rich in timber, tar, and hemp, all critical supplies 
for the Royal Navy. Now that they had secured the alliance with the Russians, they were able to gain their access to these valuable resources. Now, the alliance was not without its mutual suspicion of both parties. Russia was weary of Britain after they had monetarily funded the Ottomans in resisting Russian influence in the Mediterranean, and on the other hand, Britain was equally worried about Napoleon's infatuation with the young Tsar Alexander, and they wanted to keep him closer to their sphere of influence rather than have him drift into Napoleon's orbit. Nevertheless, at the start of 1805, they both believed that they had a shared enemy in Napoleon, and, soon to be joined by Austria and Naples, the core of the Third Coalition was formed, aimed at reducing France to her pre-1792 borders. Now, Napoleon, in between his coronation and all of the external diplomacy amongst his enemies, was busy taking stock of his troops, specifically his growing battalions up in Boulogne. Now, the last we left the Army of the Ocean Coasts, again, soon to become the Grand Armée, they were toiling about, drilling, and marching along the coast, waiting for their final orders to cross the Channel and invade the British Isles. Despite many bouts of boredom, Napoleon paid several visits to the men, which helped raise their spirits and morale, and they soon became masters of their craft before a single shot had been fired. Disciplined, professional, and loyal, these men would soon become one of the greatest fighting forces in human history. And Napoleon, only days after his coronation, visited his colonels and gave them their eagle battle standards. And in an ode to the Roman legion eagles, the standards were considered the most important part of the battle, and their defense was paramount above all else. Quote, Soldiers, Napoleon told the men, here are your colors. These eagles will always be your rallying point. Do you swear to lay down your lives in their defense? We swear, they shouted back. Now, with not only a common purpose, but a common identity, Napoleon was able to mold an army into a single cohesive unit on a mass scale. He was involved in nearly every detail and wanted to make sure that every man was taken care of. He genuinely cared for their well-being, knowing that an army was only loyal to someone who was loyal to them. And in fact, upon visiting the troops on the French coast, he told their commanding officers, quote, Pay great attention to the soldiers and see about them in detail. The first time you arrive at the camp, line up the battalions and spend eight hours at a stretch seeing the soldiers one by one, receiving their complaints, inspect their victims, and make sure they lack nothing. There are many advantages to making these reviews of seven to eight hours. The soldier becomes accustomed to being armed and on duty. It proves to him that the leader is paying attention to and taking complete care of him, which is a great confidence-inspiring motivation for the soldier. Now, the timing of it all could not have been more perfect given the diplomacy that was being displayed by Pitt around Europe, but again, I highly doubt it was all a coincidence. And in fact, after Napoleon received word of the coalition's formation and that the Kingdom of Naples was about to join in their attempt to exact some revenge from Napoleon's Italian campaigns, Napoleon bluntly wrote to Maria Carolina, who was the queen consort to King Ferdinand IV, later Ferdinand I of the two Sicilies, but that's for another day, as well as older sister to Marie Antoinette, and thus Austrian Emperor Francis's aunt. I know, it's a lot, but hey, that's European royalty. Anyway, Napoleon said, quote, I have in my hands several letters written by your majesty, which leave no doubt with regard to your secret intentions of joining the nascent coalition. You have already lost your kingdom once, 
and twice you have been the cause of a war which threatened the total destruction of your paternal house. Do you therefore wish to be the cause of a third? He went further by stating that should they join in the war, that, quote, you and your offspring will cease to reign and your errant children will go begging through the different countries of Europe. Thus, Napoleon began to send out feelers to other rulers around the world. Beginning in Persia, the Ottoman Empire, as well as Prussia, he used language hearkening back to the days of failed rebellions on their rules and of the prospect of smaller minorities within their respective kingdoms rising up against them. If he was unable to control them enough to become allies, he was hoping to scare them into submission of neutrality of joining any formal coalition. Now, Napoleon was also keen to paint the British as the financiers of all of her enemies, which, to be fair, she was. He ordered his propagandists to portray Britain in the papers with purses handing out wads of cash to all the various countries of Europe, and that only he and France stood in the way of a complete British takeover on their way of life. And, conversely, Pitt felt the same way of his nation in their battle against France. And while the money that Britain would ultimately subsidize to her allies over the course of 20 years from the start of the French Revolution to the conclusion of Waterloo was astronomical, it paled in comparison to fielding, as well as paying, a standing army of her own. As she saw it, it was better off to pay others to fight her wars for her, and then Britain would be stronger after the dust settled. And spoiler alert, that's exactly what happened. But if Britain was going to saber-rattle the rest of Europe, Napoleon decided that he might as well get his two cents in before the cannons started firing. And so, in March of 1805, he accepted the crown as the King of Italy in a grand ceremony at the Tuileries after the Italian Republic was transformed into the Kingdom of Italy. As Napoleon was the governor of this client state, he thought it logical to incorporate it into his empire, something which he also assumed would irk Emperor Francis, as bringing in the northern Italian provinces fully into his realm would be something that would hit him personally. And indeed, writing to Francis, he said that his decision was based on the British and Russians' decision to not leave Malta and Corfu respectively, as originally promised, and that the separation of France and Italy was, quote, illusionary. Shortly after his declaration, he declared his sister Eliza and her husband Felice Bacciocchi as the rulers of the provinces of Lucca and Piombino, respectively, on the Italian coast. This was, of course, a tradition he would continue throughout his reign, and the Bonapartes would extend a familial dynasty throughout Europe for much of the next decade, though their allegiance was always to their brother, if tested by some. But we will indeed get to that later on in our story. Napoleon made sure to mark the occasion with great pomp, as he was one to do. He was officially crowned on May 26, 1805 in Milan, in front of the Milanese clergy and 30,000 onlookers. It was said to have been just as glamorous as his coronation as Emperor of the French at the Notre Dame five months earlier, with the main difference being the beautiful weather and breathtaking backdrop. Napoleon used the Iron Crown of Lombardy, one of the oldest royal insignia in Christendom, made in the Middle Ages, and was allegedly worn by every Holy Roman Emperor since Frederick Barbarossa in 1155. That Napoleon chose this crown was of no surprise, given that Francis was the current Holy Roman Emperor, and his crown now lay upon the head of his greatest enemy. Upon placing it on his own head, again, Napoleon proclaimed, quote, God gives it to me, 
Beware whoever touches it. Napoleon then dug the knife in a little deeper by creating the Order of the Iron Crown a few days later as an award for meritorious service to the Kingdom of Italy. While in Italy, Napoleon philandered around, even sleeping with the wife of a rich French financier, despite the fact that Josephine was actually part of his party. He also paid a visit to the battlefield of Marengo, nearing the fifth anniversary since the decisive engagement, and he wore the same uniform that he had worn on that day, riddled with holes and covered in dirt and blood. Whether or not it was all from the battle is still a matter of some debate, but it did show the pension that Napoleon had for public relations. He was emperor, sure, but he was first and foremost a soldier, and he wanted all to see that firsthand. Napoleon then spent the rest of his time in Italy hunting and meeting with other dignitaries. He was a king, after all. He appointed his stepson Eugène to the office of viceroy and gave him guidance on ruling the Italians. Now, as we mentioned a few times already, Napoleon had great respect and admiration for Eugène, his stepson, and he always looked to him as a surrogate son. And by having him serve in Italy, along with his sister, he now had close and loyal confidants to help control his southern flank while he decided on what to do with the rest of Europe, specifically the Austrians. Because while it might sound a little crazy, Napoleon actually didn't have too many territorial ambitions beyond the Alps and the Rhine in mid-1805. Sure, he wanted to take out Britain via invasion, and more on that in a second, but on the continent, as long as Britain was contained, he believed that with their present land holdings, he would be able to maintain a peaceful status quo with the rest of the continent. He figured that as the most powerful country in Europe, he could impose a continental system, lowercase c and s for now, that would help dominate European trade and cooperation with France as its hegemon. All he needed was Britain dealt with, and this would be an easy proposition, at least so he thought at that particular time. Because in early June, Napoleon decided that the time was right to strike the British, believing that he would only need six hours to cross the Channel, establish a beachhead, and then land his troops. Quote, It is necessary for us to be masters of the sea for six hours only, he wrote on June 9th, and England will have ceased to exist. There is not a fisherman, not a miserable journalist, not a woman at her toilet who does not know that this is impossible to prevent a light squadron appearing before Boulogne. At the same time, his top naval officer, Admiral Pierre Charles Villeneuve, was on his way back across the Atlantic Ocean from Martinique in the Caribbean with an allied Spanish fleet, with Admiral Nelson not far behind, by the way, to help break the British blockade at nearby Brest. But Napoleon was confident that by mid-July, the conditions would be perfect for them to launch their long-awaited crossing of the Channel. He ordered Berthier on June 20th to, quote, embark everything, for circumstances may present themselves at any moment, so that in 24 hours, the whole expedition may start. My intention is to land at four different points at a short distance from each other. Inform the four marshals, Marshal Ney, Marshal Davout, Marshal Soult, and Marshal Lam, that there isn't a moment to be lost. Unfortunately for Napoleon, though, there was much time that wound up being lost, and confusing poor weather and ultimately a superior Royal Navy thwarted any invasion before it even began. A month later, on July 22nd, Villeneuve, now with 20 ships of the line in tow, passed Cape Finisterre on the northwest coast of Spain in Galicia and then entered into the Bay of Biscay. There, 
he was met with a British fleet of only 15 ships of the line under the command of Vice Admiral Sir Robert Calder. The ensuing Battle of Cape Finisterre would prove to be the final death knell to Napoleon's planned British invasion. Now, we don't have time to go into the battle in full detail, though for as significant as it ended up being, it's largely been forgotten in the grand context of the Napoleonic Wars. Now, the battle itself was inconclusive, and both admirals did claim victory, though the long-term significance was clearly a British win. Calder would actually be court-martialed for the heavy losses of his men he sustained, though he was able to capture two Spanish ships, as well as delay Villeneuve's push to Brest, which he was never able to do. Villeneuve retired for repairs at Vigo before going to La Coruña on Napoleon's orders, and then sailed for Cadiz on August 15th, but he had lost crucial time, and thus Napoleon was unable to break the blockade necessary to ensure a successful invasion of Britain. Lastly, Nelson would follow Villeneuve down to Cadiz, and he would blockade him there for the following two months. Now, these two months were the lead-up to one of the most important battles of the Napoleonic era, and that, of course, was the Battle of Trafalgar, which we will dive into more next week. Now, as for Calder, he would never again hold a naval command for the Royal Navy. But more critically, Napoleon would never again attempt an invasion of Britain, and his army of the coast would need to be reorganized and repurposed for the fight on the continent. And, well, boy oh boy, were they up for that challenge. Now, while all of this was unfolding, and while Napoleon was getting ready to give the final orders to send his troops across the Channel, Austria officially joined the Third Coalition. Angered by his crowning as King of Italy, his previous acquisition of Genoa, and his alliances with many of the other German states, who the Austrians saw as being in their sphere of influence, the Austrians believed that Napoleon had strayed too far from the original peace agreed to in the Treaty of Luneville, and instead, they opted for war. Now, when Napoleon found out, he was surprised, though not overly concerned. He wrote to Talleyrand that he had no use for the war, but should one break out, he would be ready for any such engagement. And, well, after all, why wouldn't he be, since he had thoroughly thrashed him the last time? Now, with the simultaneous news of the Battle of Cape Finisterre and the Austrian mobilization, Napoleon made the difficult decision to focus on the continent and then abandon the British invasion. So you see how all of this sort of ties together. Now, while furious with Villeneuve for his missed opportunity, Napoleon scoffed at the idea of Austria picking a fight with France. Quote, Anyone would have to be completely mad to make war on me, he wrote to Camasarez. Certainly there isn't a finer army in Europe than the one I have today. He then wrote to Talleyrand after he was made aware of the Austrian mobilization, quote, My mind is made up. I want to attack Austria and be in Vienna before November to face the Russians should they present themselves. Napoleon also instructed Talleyrand to try his best to persuade Francis to not engage in a war with France, as Napoleon still wanted to focus his energy on fighting the British. But knowing that fighting a war on two fronts would be unwise, especially one of them at sea against the Royal Navy, he did decide that he would focus on the Austrians first, take them out, and then reassess their position against the British once the Austrians had been neutralized. As described by an aide, Napoleon's clear and dedicated plan to take on Austria was direct and without hesitation. Quote, Without any apparent meditation, and in his brief, concise, and imperious tones, 
He dedicated to me without a moment's hesitation the whole plan of the campaign of Ulm as far as Vienna. The Army of the Coast, ranged in a line of more than 200 leagues, 600 miles long, fronting the ocean, was at the first signal to break up and march to the Danube in several columns. The order of the various marches, their durations, the spots where the various columns should converge are ruinit, surprises, attack in full force, diverse movements, mistakes of the enemy, all had been foreseen during this hurried dictation. Napoleon then ordered Saint-Cyr to be ready to invade Naples from northern Italy if necessary, and Massena was given the complete command of the army of Italy, and then he sent Savare to Germany to procure the best maps available in their quest to invade Austria. With Berthier's impeccable filing system and Napoleon's detailed planning, the formations for the upcoming Ulm campaign had begun. And now, finally, we can bring into the fold the Grand Armée. While the Army of the Coast had been awaiting their orders to launch the full-scale invasion of Britain, Napoleon's constant inspection of the troops proved decisive in forming them into a formidable fighting force, indeed one of the greatest in history. Napoleon was keen on dividing them into corps, essentially smaller armies that could be mobilized at a moment's notice, and moved at lightning speed in different directions while still inflicting considerable damage on the enemy. Consisting of units of anywhere from twenty to 40,000 men, the corps consisted of their own infantry, artillery, cavalry, staff, intelligence, engineering, transport, medical, as well as an officer corps. The idea was that they could each work independently of one another and then come together to create an even larger force if necessary. Napoleon wanted an army that could turn on a dime, literally turning his rear guard into the van and vice versa given the troop movements of the enemy. They were so disciplined that each corps was to be no more than a 24-hour march from the closest corps, meaning that each unit was always at most a day away from reinforcement, help, or in many cases, envelopment of the enemy. Each corps was usually commanded by a marshal, and he was given near-complete autonomy, something which greatly fostered loyalty not only amongst the troops in the unit, but the military leadership as well. And in allowing this, Napoleon was giving his marshals, as well as up-and-coming generals, the ability to prove their worth in the thick of battle, many of whom used the opportunity to do just that, not only for the emperor, but for France. Napoleon was also content to allow this, as he had never commanded cavalry or infantry in battle, because remember folks, he was an artillery commander, so he was able to rely on his martial skills and expertise to do this. Napoleon would use the course to devastating effect in the upcoming Ulm campaign and beyond, and as we mentioned earlier in the series, while he wasn't the first to come up with the tactic, he was the first to use it to such great success. Devastating success. Napoleon also did not want to repeat much of the mistakes that had happened at Marengo, i.e. his armies being spread too thin and across a large battlefield, and so employing the core system would greatly prevent this from happening again. And in fact, Napoleon would write years later that it had been the process of spreading armies across long lines which had led to the failures in the Revolutionary Wars prior to his ascension, and he instead massed many of his corps in a single concentrated unit to converge on a point he wanted to attack. And in an era where the former was fought by the latter, Napoleon was able to inflict immense losses on his enemies while suffering very few of his own. And indeed, many of his most famous losses would come when he failed to deploy his core system properly. And by the end of his rule, his core system would become the battle standard for modern warfare, 
used all the way through the Second World War. It was this, more than anything else, that Napoleon left as a lasting legacy militarily, and it is a battle strategy that is still studied in military academies all over the world. And with this battle strategy now ingrained in all of his men at Boulogne, and with Europe beckoning for war with France, Napoleon was about to unleash the strategy and his forces onto the rest of the continent. In late August of 1805, Napoleon wrote to his Bavarian counterpart that Austria was positioning itself for war. On August 26th, he received word that the Austrians were preparing to cross the River Inn and invade Bavaria, the client state of France, and Napoleon then sent a few units from the Grande Armée from Boulogne to prepare to meet them. Napoleon followed by sending Talleyrand to Prussia to offer Hanover back to them if they kept their neutrality, not wanting to fight a war against all the countries east of French borders. While still insisting on the independence of Switzerland and Holland, Prussia nevertheless accepted Napoleon's offer, knowing that he would withdraw it if they did not acquiesce in due time. With the possibility of Prussia joining the coalition now confirmed as not happening, and with the invasion of Britain now in his rear view, Napoleon could gear up his men for a lightning-fast march that would take on Austria head-on and end the war just as quickly as it had started. And next week, we will begin that lightning-fast march as we talk about the Ulm campaign. <laughs>